take another spin. spin. Okay, you're on. Hey, mouth, low, scatter, edge. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light, which understanding is simple. I open my mouth and hand, longing for your command. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word, that no sin rule over me. Keep me from oppression and death, that I may obey your precepts. May shine upon your subdued, be your priest. Dreams and tears flow from my eyes, Lord. Okay. Well, we have uh, a monitor is not on, but Sergio says we're live, so we're just going to go with Sergio and and uh, figure that's it. Okay, you got that, and we got that here. Next week is study, and let's see. We got a. Oh, let me grab this. Hang on. Always helps. Helps to be ready. There you go. Always helps to be ready. Yay, and mom walked in just on time today, so I can't verbally abuse her. Let's see. <laughs> All right, we'll read that first, then we'll have a couple prayer requests, and then we'll get started. Let's see here. Today is a second, so 29th, thank you. All right, 29 April. Let's see what they have to say here. 25, 20, 30. Okay, 29 April. From boyhood, he continually astounded everyone with his wisdom. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Every Jewish male was required to attend, but women who loved God came as well. You know, this is incorrect. I'm going to say it again in the sermon that everybody was required to attend. Every person had to go to every pilgrim feast. This is incorrect. Uh, let's see here. Um, it was a difficult 80-mile trip from Nazareth, but Passover was the highlight of the year. Since highway robbers were a known danger, pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem usually traveled together in car caravans for protection. Mary and Joseph traveled with a large group of friends and relatives. When Jesus was 12 years old, the Passover was on April 29th, A.D. 9. Now, they can't know that for certain, but they're just estimating it here. And the whole family attended the festival as usual. This was a highly significant period in Jesus' life because at age 13, Jewish boys were considered to be responsible for themselves before God. The year prior to this was filled with intense instruction. The custom of the bar mitzvah, which means son of the covenant, came after the time of Jesus. That's correct. It was a later thing that they did. After the celebration was over, Mary and Joseph started home for Nazareth with their large group of fellow pilgrims. Without their knowledge, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not miss him at first because they assumed he was with friends elsewhere in the caravan. But when they stopped for the evening, they could not find him and realized he was missing. So they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. Three days later, they finally found him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers engaged in a question and answer session with them. But Mary and Joseph were angry at what they perceived as his disobedience. They were relieved to find him, but were understandably upset. Mary said, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. Jesus answered her, But why did you need to search? You should have known that I would be in my father's house. In Jesus' Greco-Roman world, house or household was not only a designation of location, but also of authority. Jesus was aligning himself with his heavenly father's house, even if it meant disrupting his relationship with his earthly parents. 
This was a foreshadowing of the pattern for the rest of his life. Mary and Joseph did not understand what he meant. They could not comprehend Jesus' understanding of who he was, but Mary stored all these things in her heart. Then, as an obedient 12-year-old, Jesus returned to Nazareth with his parents and lived under their authority. And they say, Mary and Joseph were probably the very first persons to wrestle with the question of who Jesus was. It should say is. He's not. Okay, but before his birth, an angel had told Jesus or had told Joseph that Mary's son would save his people from their sins and had told Mary her son would be very great and would be called the son of the Most High. Yet Mary and Joseph did not completely understand the angel's messages. These were things that Mary pondered in her heart. We too must answer the question, who is Jesus? What is your answer? And they say, Luke 135, so the baby born to you will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Okay, let's see here. We have... Um, Oh, I, I will have it all moved out in a second. We're going to be in great shape here in one second. Um, okay, I got that. I got that. All right. Uh, Chelsea went to China and has returned, and uh, they say that she's almost in a demonic condition. And uh, they're asking for prayers to have rectified whatever is going on. She, uh, uh, They start praying for her, and she goes outside and just going crazy. So I don't know. I told him there's several possibilities. If she was never saved, then it could be a demon. If she's saved, it could be demon affliction, but a demon cannot possess a saved believer. And uh, it could be something mentally wrong, a chemical imbalance or you know schizophrenia, or it could be um, brainwashing. Whatever it is, we want to pray for Chelsea. All right. Um, uh, my friend Paul, I grew up with him and uh, went to school. They played here one time. You remember he and his wife, Amy, um, She's having a medical procedure next week, and uh, he's also got some real difficult trouble in his neighborhood without giving any specifics. We want to keep them in prayer. And then Sean, who lives here just down the road in Florida, he, uh, he's just had terrible, terrible physical problems lately. He's got a very bad heart. He's got no energy at all, and he is uh, uh, going to see a doctor soon, but he's asking for prayers because it's affecting every part of his life, and he's just... he's. Uh, just having a difficult time. And then finally, Jody and her sister are traveling, so we want to keep them in prayer. There you what's go this, with that. Uh, <laughs> oh, goodness. It was uh, surprising last Sunday, all the people that traveled to the church that are still traveling, so we'll add them into our prayers as well. I mean, we had people from Oregon, and we had people from uh, uh, North Carolina are still here. Where were they from? Uh, oh, we just had people from all over uh, Illinois, and uh, uh, it was very nice to see, but uh, uh, just difficult to imagine so many people visiting a little church like this all at the same time, but it happened, so we're very grateful about that. But we'll pray now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word what a treat and what a blessing it is to to open your word to read it and to let it fill our lives. And we would pray that uh, anybody that has not got the hunger for your word that uh, is attending this class, that they would decide, I want to know more and start reading it daily, picking it up and just going through it and whatever they can handle from a single verse to a chapter a day or even three chapters a day, whatever it is that you put on their hearts and their abilities, we would pray that you would have them stick to that and to, uh, 
uh, just grow in your word. And Lord, we certainly pray for these people we just mentioned, and some of them just are very difficult situations, and we know that your hand is with these people, but uh, uh, in the case of this young lady, she needs to submit to you in whatever way uh, is wrong right now. We would just pray that that would happen so that this would be behind her and she would be working with a clear mind once again and all of the other people we pray for as well. And Lord, we thank you for the chance also to uh, meet as a group here. We ask that anything that is said that would is said would be in accord with your word and if it's not that that would be alerted to us so that we would not have improper doctrine and we pray this to your glory certainly and we pray it in jesus name amen all right let's see here you what in here 49 49 yeah oops so we got to do this we are in um ephesians chapter 2 and we're starting in verse 4 today all right as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, you were by nature objects of wrath. Four. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy. Oh, yeah, I guess that's it. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. That one ends a little better than yours did. But uh, uh, same thought. They just turned a couple clauses around and, uh, you know, can't go plagiarizing somebody else. So you got to change something somewhere. Yeah. Hi, Miss Garrett. How are you? That's the uh, wife, Miss Garrett, walked in just now. So it's looking very cute. Let's see here. Um, this thought picks up after verse 2-1. Verse 2-1, and you he made alive with uh, who were dead in trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. So you can see how smoothly it flows, just picking up right after 2-1. The intervening verses simply explained the details of our dead condition. They described living in a state of certain ruin from which there was no escape and only an inevitable and final bringing on of God's wrath could be expected. However, as the pulpit commentary so beautifully states it, man's extremity becomes God's opportunity. Where we were destined for certain destruction, God stepped in and redirected the situation for us. Uh, before I go on, somebody emailed, I actually wrote me a letter and uh, I read it and responded, but um, we were talking about regeneration last week and uh, where was it? Verse one, uh, if you were, you, it's verse one, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, and we talked about, I want to go over that a little more just because um, uh, she was listening to, I think, reading a commentary by a uh, pastor that she's listened to for a long time. And she said, isn't this Calvinism? And what he said is John 6, 37, got to John 6, 37. And he said, this is one of the most important verses to understand our position before God. And so let me take you there. We'll read it. And uh, John 6, 37, it's one that Calvinists hold firmly to. Okay. They hold very firmly to John 6, 37. All that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And, this 
preacher said exactly what a Calvinist preacher would teach. He says, you are first born again. God regenerates you in order to believe, and then you believe, and then you're saved, okay? And so he went, typical text verse for Calvinists is John 6:37. If they ever quote you any argument, they will always include this, and this is the one that they use preeminently. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So he's saying that we can't come to the Father unless the Father gives them to Jesus, okay? They're skipping the entire context of what Jesus is saying. If you read chapter 5 and chapter 6, you'll see that he constantly is saying that the word is about me, okay? The word is speaking about me, and he uh, says, uh, where is it? You, uh, you search the writings. Uh, where is it? For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And he says it also elsewhere, um, uh, you search the scriptures and they are what testify of me. So he's, he says this again and again. And the context is that the script, he, who is he talking to in John 6, 37? He's speaking to the Jews in Israel. He's speaking to them under the law. And he's telling them that they're not going to come to him unless the father leads them to him. Well, how does the father lead them to him? exactly what he has been telling them through the word. You search the scriptures and there you will find me. Moses wrote about me, etc. He's making a point that if you're going to ignore the scriptures that came from the father, you're not going to come to me. Okay. It's a terrible argument to make to say that we are regenerated by God. We are born again. And then we call on Jesus, and then we are saved. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's not to be found in Scripture. And John 6, 37 has nothing to do with the context of what Jesus is saying as Calvinists use it. And then, as I always tell people afterward, I say uh, in John chapter 12. Now, I've asked this before, and everybody got it right, but I want to make sure that we got some new people here that might not get this right. Does John 6 come before or after John 12? Okay, everybody got it right. It comes before. And in John 12, he says, um, where is it? Let me see if I can find this. Um, uh, John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. So obviously, John 12 is explaining something after John 6, which has already been taken out of the proper context. So when a Calvinist tells you that you're dead in your sins and you have no way of calling on the Father, you what did I call that? It was last week, I think, when I, I said that's a certain type of fallacy. It's called a, well, yeah, it's a, it's a lie, a pretext, but it is a fallacy known as a category mistake. Just because we are dead spiritually, that means there's no connection to God. That happened at the fall of Adam, and it's been in every human ever since. We find that all the way throughout Scripture. It does not mean that we are dead beings. We are physical beings. We are alive physically. We are cognitive beings, most of us. We think things through. We are given free will. All of these things are a part of who we are as human beings. And so when a Calvinist says that you are dead in your sins and your trespasses, and therefore you can't call on God, they have made a category mistake. The category is spiritual life and death as opposed to physical life and death. And our physical life allows us things like free will. And every single Calvinist that you've ever talked to, when you ask about sin, they will say, you have free will to sin. They will not deny that, because if not, then they're imputing wrongdoing to God. And they can't do that, 
So they acknowledge that you have free will in every single aspect of your life. You have free will who you choose to marry. You have free will what color chair you're going to sit on at the Superior Word today, etc. All the way through until it comes to whether you can choose Jesus or not. And then they say, you can't, you're dead. It, it, it's very poor theology, and I thought I would get that out while we're looking at this particular verse because it's exactly what we're still talking about. I'll read that again now. The intervening verses simply explained the details of our dead condition. They described living in a state of certain ruin. It's speaking of our spiritually dead state that we're already separated from God. We can't save ourselves. Nobody, I don't know a single person that would say we can save ourselves, and I'm talking about people that understand the Bible properly, that say that we can save ourselves. Christ does everything for us. Every single thing is done for us, and all we have to do is receive it. That is not a work in any way, shape, or form. It is something that we respond to, okay? So, um, an inevitable and final bringing on God's wrath could be expected. That's what we can expect because Jesus said it in John 3, 18. He said, if you don't believe in the Son, you are condemned already. Is that a car out there that's making that noise? Can you? Yeah, it really is. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, if you hear something on the video later, I apologize. Somebody outside has got a car with like a bad belt or something. Anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Um, don't open the door because what's that? I guarantee if someone that they love in their life did not come to Absolutely right. And I had this this weekend. I was traveling with my good friend who likes to bring that up. I'm anything about it. His daughters that have not come to her. And I said, I said, you know, the Calvinist thing just allows you the ability to blame God. That's right. For them. That's so right. Are you blaming God for that? Absolutely. And, yeah. That... And, and there was there was silence for a few minutes. And like, you know, yeah. so just, it's, it's free will. He is, Period. what he said, just in case you didn't hear him, is that any Calvinist that you come across will always have somebody in their life that has not come to Christ. And they are implicitly blaming god for that they're saying it's their excuse for saying well my daughter hasn't come to christ and so she's just not one of the elect and so it takes the pressure off of you for doing your job which is praying evangelizing them witnessing to them living a life that will hopefully bring them to the lord and also there's another part of this that a lot of people will dismiss is that if they are not living for the lord then they you know it's probably reflecting i'm talking about the children in this case it's probably reflecting back on them and they don't want to acknowledge that and so there's a lot going on in people's minds when they use calvinism calvinism as an excuse for not being saved but in the end it is their choice christ has done the work the path is paved it's very clear in scripture that whoever believes john 3 16 or uh you know romans 10 9 and 10 or, you know, anywhere else where it says, like hundreds of times, if you believe, 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 it always comes down to faith. And faith is not a work. It is simply an exercising of what you have inside of you, saying, I am going to trust this person that I've been told about. It, that's Plus, what it comes down to. If I can add something to that. Let's assume in that particular situation I'm talking about, a child that did not come to Christ. Right. If you believe that it's God's fault for doing it, how do you ever evangelize to that child and say oh you're not saved because god didn't pick you yeah that's, that's going to turn but, right into and like why a, would you even bother evangelizing right, in right. his in his theology which you've told me about him many times 
in his theology, there's no point in evangelizing because if God chooses people apart from your free will, then there's no need for missionaries. There's no need, actually, if you think about it, there's no need for church. You don't need to go on Sunday because you're the elect. God has made the decision. You can stay at home and do whatever. You don't have to participate. You don't need to support a church, which is supposed to be telling people about Jesus. If you take, and I know, of course, they will deny this. Well, we need to send missionaries and we need to do this and that. But it is a conflict within them, which is irreconcilable. It is irreconcilable. Anyway, um, the word but in this verse, it says here, uh, verse four, um, but God, who is rich in mercy because of this great love, the word but is emphatic, and it conveys the absolute sovereignty of God in the matter. God is completely sovereign in everything that he does. Once again, exercising free will does not violate God's sovereignty. Just because God knows what you are going to do does not mean that he has preordained it to happen. He knows whether you will choose him or not. He knew that before he created anything in this universe, but it does not negate your responsibility in the matter. We could do nothing. We were in an impossible state of death leading unto death. Once again, John 3, 18. But God transcends our realm, and what is impossible for us is entirely within his abilities. And yet there is more. Not only is correcting the matter within his ability, it is a part of his very nature to take the action. So it says, but God. But God shows the absolute contrast between our helpless condition and God's ability to correct it. Who is rich in mercy? Once again, Paul's words, but God who is rich in mercy. That reveals mercy is a part of his nature. We've talked about his attributes many times. You've got grace, you've got mercy, you've got love, you've got righteousness and justice and holiness and all of these attributes of God. And he cannot set aside one of his attributes in order to exercise another one. He can't say, I'm going to be loving to this person and violate his justice. He cannot say, I'm going to be merciful and violate his righteousness. All of these have, have to be satisfied between God and man, 100% and completely. They, he cannot just say, I'm going to overlook this transgression, because that means he's unrighteous or he's unjust, because he did it with somebody else, but he didn't do it with this person. He can't do that. The way that these things are satisfied is through the cross of Christ. He demonstrates his love when he sent his son. He demonstrates his mercy on the subjects who should be of his wrath. He demonstrates his grace, that unmerited favor that we receive. He demonstrates his holiness because he's separate from us, and yet he can reach down to us through the cross. All of these things are reconciled through the cross, and they are not reconciled any other way. It is impossible for them to be reconciled any other way. And because of that, there is no other religion that can bring salvation to a person. I know that's not something that people want to hear in today's world, but it is the way it is. It's, you know, and people can say, well, it's unfair that only Christians get to go to heaven. I'll tell you what, anybody, if anybody is saved, it's, it's a complete act of God's grace and mercy, a complete act of, just because certain people are saved and certain people are not saved does not mean that God is unrighteous, that God is unfair in any way, shape, or form. It means that, one, they may not have heard the message, which isn't God's fault, okay? He came at the right time in redemptive history. He gave his son. There was a hope of people before that time in the Messiah. Job, even, who was outside of the covenant people, had that hope. We can be assured that Job is saved. 
he had a faith in the coming Redeemer. Okay, the same is true with today. God has presented his son to the world, and it is totally, totally up to the church for this message to get out. Okay, we have, this is an example I gave before, but if you think about it, we have a country right now that was established on Christian principles. They used to use the government of the United States would publish Bibles, and they would do all of these things, getting the word out in various ways, okay? If this nation, which is a Christian nation according to the Trinity decision, it's a nation that is called a Christian nation by jurisprudence to this day. It's never been overridden by the Supreme Court of the United States. If this nation, this one nation on this planet, would use its resources the way that it could have instead of the way that it does, every single person on this planet today would be evangelized. There would not be a single person on this planet that did not receive the message, okay? We know this because with a small group of faithful Christians, there are people all over the world right now telling people about Jesus, and this has been going on for many, many years, but we've got people that from this church, we have how many uh, missionaries that we support and people in Africa that we support, churches over there, and this is just one little church, and there's lots and lots of them. But out of the gross national product of America, it is peanuts what we have put out as Christians from America. And yet the word has gone out. Okay, so the point is that it is the failure of the Christians to get this message out that those people haven't been saved or haven't heard the message. But that's not God's fault. God has given us the resources, He has given us the abilities. And so we can't, anybody that says, it's not fair as a person that has heard the message and they've just rejected it. So that's their problem. They've heard the message. They know that it exists, and that is their problem. It's an excuse to say, well, I don't like the God of the Bible. Once again, that's their problem. They have not thought the issue through, but that's not God's fault. Okay, so who is rich in mercy? It reveals that mercy is a part of his nature, just as he is gracious, just as he is truthful, just as he is holy, loving, and so on. He is also merciful. It identifies his character. And this mercy is, as Paul says, rich. The Greek word gives the idea of muchness. He is simply abounding in mercy towards the objects of his affection. And the reason why they are the objects of his affection is because they have received what his son has done. Okay, And the muchness of the mercy, just look at any person here, we were infinitely, infinitely separated from God. It doesn't matter how good you were or how bad you were. One sin infinitely separated you from an infinite creator. He is infinitely righteous. He's infinitely just. He's infinitely merciful. All of these attributes. And we are infinitely separated from him because of one finite sin. So that shows you the muchness of God. Even if he was to forgive only one person, only one person called on Jesus in all of human history, the muchness would be more than anybody could ever imagine. Because it's going to go on forever. The salvation of that one person will go on forever and forever and forever, and it will never end. But it's happened that many people have called on Christ. And so imagine the muchness of the people that have been redeemed by God. Some of them weren't terrible people. Some of them were okay people. Some of them were really, really bad people. It doesn't matter. The grace of God and the riches of the mercy of God are infinite. And we will understand this forever. That's coming up in a few verses. He is simply abounding in mercy towards the objects of his affection. The mercy, therefore, streams from him in abundance. And then Paul says, because of his great love. 
It shows that the mercy is directly connected to his love. Just as mercy defines his nature, so does love. So does any attribute of God. When John says God is love, it means that God is love. He's not just making a, a, a comparison or an analogy. He is love. It defines who he is, and God is merciful. Go back and read uh, Exodus, where he says, the Lord, the Lord, abounding uh, in uh, loving kindness 34. and mercy. Yeah, 34. Anyway, um, he's telling Moses his nature, his very nature. And what did Moses do later? He used that statement of the Lord, knowing that the Lord had that attribute about him in order to work the mercy of the Lord towards the people of Israel that the Lord said he's going to destroy. He said, oh, Lord, aren't you abundant? He went back and almost quoted, almost verbatim what the Lord had said. Burke will find it. Um, and his mercy abounds so great, also his love. It overflows from him as a spring overflows its opening. The water is impelled up and out by the force of pressure. It is as if in him the outflowing of his love cannot be bottled up. Instead, it streams from him towards his elect, as is seen in the words, with which he loved us. Again, the pulpit commentary notes that the verb of love, governing the noun of love, makes the idea rich and strong. The view of the exuberance of the divine attributes from which salvation is, has its rise is in harmony with the whole character of the epistle. That's the pulpit commentary there. It's showing us that everything about God is just overflowing in wonder, in marvel, in ways that we can't even imagine. And that just defines his nature. You got it? Go ahead. Exodus 34, 5, 6, and part of 7. 34, 5, 6, and 7. Read it real loud. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who gives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There you go. Wonderful. And that's what Moses turned around and almost cited back to him when he was, Lord, I know that you are these things, and the Lord relented. And, you know, he was just testing Moses. The, the Lord already knew all these things, but he's testing Moses. How is Moses going to respond to this? And you can see how he does this with people in Scripture. He will set himself as if he doesn't know what's going on, and he's waiting for somebody to make an action, and they find out more about themselves in the process. So, the elect. Well, yes, there is the elect. Okay, so um, we are the elect. It, it's how do we become the elect, which is the question. So Calvinism has their idea of the elect, and Paul uses the term the elect as well. So um, it's not wrong to use the term the elect. It's just how is it applied by various people? Is it Are the elect the people that have believed in Jesus? Are the elect those that God elected apart from their free will, etc.? So that's when you hear the word elect, I know, especially because Calvinism beats it over people's head that you kind of want to stand back from it. But um, same thing with predestination. You know, they talk about predestination all the time in Calvinism. And so you kind of think, well, I don't want to. But Paul addresses predestination explicitly. So it is a doctrine. It's just how do you come to that doctrine, which is the important part. Or it all, knows it all. That's right. My decision, you know. That's right. I don't know. I don't know it until it's made. That's exactly right. 
Okay, Paul's explanation of what occurs towards us when we are in Christ is revealed through the letter, and it conveys to us the highest sense of God's reaching out to his creatures, demonstrating his infinite attributes through the giving of his Son for us. That's based on the words in Christ that Paul was using right there. As Psalm 136, verse 26, hang on one sec, let me put that there. 136, 26 says... 109, 119, 144, 144, 146, verse 26. It says, uh, I've got to be in the right psalm. Okay, 26. Oh, yeah. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. That's probably the most commonly repeated uh, set of words in the entire Bible. I think that's correct. It's his mercy endures forever. Anyway, um, so should we also call out from our souls. His mercy endures forever. Life application, when we fail to act as we should, when we really mess up and think, how could God still love me? We can come to this verse and ponder it. Because of Christ, God's mercy simply overflows, flows over us. His love surrounds us and his eternal salvation continues to adorn us. Let us pick ourselves back up and proceed on with pursuing Christ, who already pursued us. Well, 36 is every verse. Oh, I know. I was just reading the last one. Okay. Every verse of... How many are in 136? Uh, 26. 26, yes. Okay, 26. And then what is the number, the gematria for the name of the Lord? <laughs> Yud. Oops, i got to get a piece of chalk that works. Yud. Hey. Bav. Hey, okay, yeah, so we've got 10, and then hey is 8, and then Bob is 6, and then that's 8. So we got 10, 8, and 8 is 16. Uh, no, that's not right. Hey is, uh, what is that? Uh, uh, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, hey, 5. Sorry about that. 5, okay, so 5 and 5 is 10, 10 and 10 is 20, plus 6 is 26. And so it's, they're basing the Lord, uh, his mercy endures forever based if they repeat that 26 times based on the number of his name. A little squiggle for your brain there. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, the tapestry. It's just the Bible's just unbelievable. Um, yeah, he already pursued us. Verse 2 5. Made us alive with Christ, even we pretend it's by grace. Once again, it says the same thing, it's just backwards. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Okay, obviously, most people know these verses here, but they're so wonderful. As seen in the previous verse, this verse, which is connected to verse 4, now ties us back to verse 1 again. Taken together, the thought goes, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 1. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Okay, well the question is, how did he make us alive together with Christ? It's based on our faith. It's based on believing in what he did. Unless you're a Calvinist, and then he went through this long, cumbersome process, which he did not explain in his word, but that's how he does it to them. Okay, we were dead in, as Paul says, dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. Okay, once again, Paul's words. This verse is, unfortunately, oh, here it goes, 
taken to unnecessary extremes by those who hold to a monergistic approach to our salvation. Monergistic means mono is single, erg means work, like, you know, ergonomics, okay? Monerg and gistic means, uh, it would be like a ism, okay? The doctrine of uh, one working. That would be the way to explain monergistic or monergism. Okay, monergistic approach to our salvation, such as the teaching of Calvinists. In this, they will say that a person who is dead is dead. Okay, I shouldn't have given my comments earlier because I'm going to repeat them right now, but that's okay. <clears throat> they can in no way make themselves alive. Okay, and therefore regeneration precedes faith. Okay, this is Table Talk Magazine on Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 10, written by R.C. Sproul. And gives us daily commentary. I used to get the table talk commentary, and um, here he goes. In other words, God sovereignly, this is still my comments, and I'll get to R.C. Sproul in a second. In other words, God sovereignly chooses who will be saved. He then regenerates them in order to believe, and then they believe. In essence, they are saved in order to be saved. That is exactly what Calvinism teaches, even though they will deny that's what they say. Okay, in essence, a person is saved before they believe, not after. The belief is a result of their salvation. Because regeneration of the Spirit is the saving mark of God, which is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which we've already gone through, R.C. Sproul states their ideology this way. You have as much power to awaken yourself from spiritual death as a corpse has the power to awaken himself from physical death. Well, nobody says that we awaken ourselves. Nobody, nobody ever, I don't know a single person that has ever said we regenerate ourselves. Christ does the work, but we do the receiving of what Christ has done, and then the Holy Spirit regenerates us. There's not a problem here, but once again, you see that he took one category and he applied it to another category. That's what I was talking about. It's a fallacy known as a category mistake. Here it is, and this is a serious category mistake. Just because a person is spiritually dead, it does not mean that they are completely dead. A functioning brain is a part of human existence. Well, in most cases, the spiritual connection between God, it's something that's going away very quickly in the world, but there are still people that think out there. Uh, let's see here. The spiritual connection between God and man is cut, but this does not mean that man is incapable of doing good things. It doesn't mean they're good if they do good things. I want to make sure that you understand that. We can do all the good in the world. You know, somebody gives a lot of money to AIDS research. It doesn't mean that God accepts that as a good thing because it is based on the doer as much as the doing until the doer is in Christ. Okay? If you're not in Christ, God can't accept your, do your doing good. He cannot accept it because it's already tainted by sin. There's no covering of you for God to accept you. As a matter of fact, Isaiah says it. He says, God cannot hear you because your sins have separated you from him. That might be a bit of a misquote, but that's basically it. The same applies to the things you do. Okay. Yeah, I, th I, I thought it was right, but I just wanted to make sure there. And if it's not, I'm letting them know that they can go check that. But anyway, uh, uh, the spiritual connection between God and man is cut. But this does not mean that God is incapable of doing good things, nor is he incapable of seeing what is good. And this is the important point to understand this. We can see what is good and we can pursue it. Everybody knows the difference between beauty and ugliness. What beauty is, is something that 
people have tried to define literally for thousands of years. And there's no perfect definition of beauty. Because some people, some people will say beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? But the Bible says that God has made everything beautiful in its time, okay? To, it's, it may be partially true that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, but at the same time, I can look at somebody that I'm happy with today, and I can say, isn't that a beautiful person? And then when I'm really angry at that same person, they're just ugly, you know? And so beauty is not something that I'm going to sit here and try to define because we can't, all right? There is a, a thing that we recognize as beautiful, and there is a thing that we recognize as ugly, okay? When we see something that is beautiful, we tend to go towards the beautiful. We can recognize good and we go for it. Okay, if I see two cars, I've got $500 and there's two cars and there's an old lady that's selling her husband's car. He died and she doesn't know what it is. And it's a 1965 Corvette with 3000 miles on it in perfect mint condition, $500. And there's another car over here. It's a uh, Yugoslavian Yugo. Okay, it doesn't have an engine and I'd have to cut a hole in the floor and push it with my feet. And that's $500 as well. Obviously, I can see the good and I will pursue the good. Now, if I'm honest, I tell the old lady that's worth a million dollars and you need to not sell this to me or anybody else. Go get it evaluated. But the point is that we know what is good and we know what is bad. Okay. We have that ability. And that is what Calvinists don't deny in every facet of our life except one. And then they say, we can't see the good in God. I mean, I'm saying that implicitly. They don't actually say that, but that's what they're implicitly saying. Because Calvinism says we cannot pursue the good. And that means that we can't see the good which is in God, because we can see it everywhere else in our life. If I see a pigsty over here and I see a McDonald's over here, I know which one I'm going to eat at. I'm certainly not going to eat at McDonald's. Anyway, um, uh, in the giving of Christ, God makes an offer to fallen man. Man sees this good work of God in Christ and chooses of his volitional free will to accept or reject it. Everybody see that? God has made an offer, okay? We know this is true. I've talked about this in various ways, but I'll start with one right here. We know this is true because I may be presented the gospel with my best friend next to me. And I hear the gospel and I respond. And my friend says, well, I just don't believe that, okay? That's his choice. That is his free will choice. But suppose I am with my friend and a couple Jehovah's Witnesses come up and I hear their good news. Jesus isn't God, but God sent this being and he did this stuff for us and I accept that, okay? And then all of a sudden I realize that's untrue. That was the spirit of the Antichrist. The very fact that we have a spirit of the Antichrist means that the spirit of God is accessible to us because God did not purposefully give us the spirit of the Antichrist to receive. We did it by free will. Everybody see that? And therefore, because it was by free will, God is not here to deceive us. He allows us to make the decision based on the available information in front of us. Okay, the spirit of Antichrist proves the spirit of Christ is available to us. Calvinism cannot see that, and it is a fundamental error I'm just picking on them because these verses are so centered on their doctrine. But there are other people that have other doctrines as well, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, before we get out of Ephesians 2, like, um, can you lose your salvation? Okay, that would be Arminian doctrine. 
Jacob Arminius, and then Wesleyan Calvin, um, Wesleyan Arminianism built upon that. They say that you can choose God like a non-Calvinist would, but then they say you can lose your salvation. Okay, the Bible doesn't teach that either, and I'll pick on them when we get to that time. It's just right now, the doctrine of monergism is what is being addressed specifically. Paul is giving us the fact that it is not monergistic, that it is in fact synergistic. Synergism means working together. It could be two, it could be three, it could be a thousand, but you're working together on something. In this case, God has made the offer, you have received the offer. Synergism. Okay, so um, man sees this good work. In the giving of Christ, God makes an offer to fallen man. Here's my son, I have done this, I'm offering it. Man sees this good work of God in Christ and chooses of his volitional free will to accept or reject it. If it is accepted, then he is deemed righteous by God. At that moment, you are righteous before me, just as Abraham was, Genesis 15, 6. God took him outside, look up at the stars, so you can't even number or count them, so shall your descendants be. I know I just added that in, but I'm not trying to quote that verse. I'm just telling you the substance of it. There, look up at the stars, if you can count them, so shall your descendants be. Abraham believed God, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. He declared him righteous at that moment because beyond hope, he believed the message of the Lord. And that is the pattern, as Paul said in the book of Galatians, for us to come. We are sons of Abraham by that same faith. He is deemed righteous by God. He is justified by the work of Christ and regenerated in his spirit. All of that happens at the same moment, but it does happen, <clears throat> excuse me, in a logical sequence. And we will talk about that logical sequence. Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 22, observe the Feast of Tabernacles this Sunday. There is a sequence in what God does. And it is, believe it or not, shown forth in the three pilgrim feasts of the Lord. Once again, you have the feasts of the Lord. There's eight of them. And some of them deal solely with the work of Christ and are receiving that work, such as the uh, first uh, feast of the Lord, which is the Sabbath. Christ is our Sabbath rest. We enter God's rest through Christ, Hebrews 4, 3. And then you come up with the next feast of the Lord, which is the Passover. Christ is the Passover lamb, okay? Affixed to the Passover, also known as the Passover, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's an entire week after the Passover where we are living out our lives, as Paul says, in sinlessness, uh, how did he say it, um, without uh, leaven in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, let me read it to you so you know. But this is all presented in the, um, uh, this is all presented in the Feast of the Lord. They are in a particular order. They logically follow one another, but they all happen at the same time in us. We have things in an order because we are living in a temporal existence. We're living in time and space and matter. We're going forward. And so God presents us things in a logical way. But it says here in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. He did the work. And then we have the pilgrim feast. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the chag. It's a different word completely. Okay, keep the feast. It's the Hebrew word, not the Greek word, but the, the Hebrew word. Not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ made it available to us. We receive the work of Christ, and then we enter into our pilgrim feast. Okay, 
they what they did in Israel is pictured in what we do in the church. They physically did it. We spiritually do it. The next feast is the Feast of Weeks. And as I said last week, when we went through the Feast of Weeks, it is the only one of the three Hag, or pilgrim feasts, that what? Nobody remembers. It doesn't have a set time frame. All, the other two say seven days you're to do this. But this one has, it doesn't give any dating, which is so unusual. Why wouldn't the Bible do that? Why wouldn't the Bible tell you how many days you're supposed to go down to Jerusalem and what you're supposed to do there? Because you're only sealed with the Spirit one time. And that is, we are living now in our pilgrim feast of the Feast of Weeks. We have received the Holy Spirit, and we are living out our life in the harvest field of God. And so, therefore, I gave it away. Jim says he was going to watch that tomorrow. That's only a part of it. Watch it. Okay, so, and then I'll probably ask you something on Sunday so that you'll have to answer anyway. Um, but uh, then you have the final one, which is tabernacles. I'm not going to go through that today. But these three logically follow in order. So when you hear me saying that on Sunday, you can perk up, and then you will, you'll be able to remember what I said, and you'll see the logical order. It's for our benefit. It's not for God's benefit. We are. Let me read but this they again. They, well, yeah, they're, well, they're his feasts. Set times, the Moedim are his feast. They're the times, the set times for Christ, like the day of acclamation is his birthday. That is a set feast. The day of atonement, Yom Kippur, is a set feast showing us his uh, uh, crucifixion, his atoning sacrifice for us. Okay, those are Moedim. The Chag are our feasts living in Christ. He did the work, we do the living in Christ. So that's, you have to make sure that you understand the three Chag deal with us in our relationship with what Christ has done. Okay, yes. How do you spell that? Hug? They, in the Bible, they, I mean, I'm sorry, in the um, Strong's Concordance or something, they'll spell it C-H-A-G, but it's not. It's pronounced K-H-A-G, hug. If you see C-H-A-G, you're going to think it's chug, and it's not. Okay, it's hug. It comes from way back down here, and I can't get far enough down. So if I was in Israel, they'd think I was using a different letter, but I, you know... We're not we're not born with that. The easiest way to remember how to say that is to say yuck, because we do that all the time. Now take the and put it at the beginning. That'll get you the word. Chag. Okay. Anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, uh, oh, I was saying that God has done all of these things for us. It says man sees this good work of God in Christ and chooses his volitional free will to accept or reject it. If it is accepted, then he is deemed righteous by God justified by the work of Christ and regenerated in his spirit. Just like the three feasts of the Lord, which come in an order, although they happen at the same time in God, they're presented to us in an order. The same thing happens here. We are righteous, we are justified, and we are regenerated. They all happen at the same time, but there's a logical order to them. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, is correct that we cannot awaken ourselves from spiritual death. Only a work of God can do that. But that work of God comes not from being regenerated in order to believe, but rather from an act of the free will in man, which then triggers God's regeneration of our spirit, just as it did with Father Abraham. Okay, It doesn't say anywhere in Genesis 15, verse 6, anything about God regenerated Abraham, and so Abraham believed God, and then God deemed him righteous. It doesn't say that. Okay. Paul says that Abraham is the type for us. We are sons of Abraham through the same type of faith, okay? Meaning, 
Just like Abraham walked outside and looked up and believed, that's what happened to, happens to us, okay? This is what Paul is referring to when he says that God, when, when he refers to when he says that God, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Our spirits were dead, but God made them alive, not before, but after we believed. Albert Barnes goes further with Paul's intent. He says, Albert Barnes is one of the great thinkers of Christianity, in my opinion. He's got some errors in his thinking, but not nearly as many as others. He's a very clear-thinking person. He says, the construction here is, God who is rich in mercy, on account of the great love which he bare unto us, even being dead in sin, hath quickened us, etc., Here's his words. It does not mean that he quickened us when we were dead in sin, but that he loved us then and made provision for our salvation. It was love to the children of wrath, love to those who had no love to return to him, love to the alienated and the lost. That is true love, the sincerest and purest benevolence. Love not like that of people, but such as only God bestows. Man loves his friend, his benefactor, his kindred. God loves his foes and seeks to do them good. That is Albert Barnes right there. Wonderful stuff, and he's absolutely right on that. Although it is true that we were dead in sin when we received Christ, Barnes argues that this isn't the main point of the thought. Rather, he says that the focus is on God's love toward us, even in our deadened state. And thus he made a way for the correction of that state. The concept of monergism being regenerated in order to believe is erroneous, and it leads to other major faults in one's theology. The final words of the verse today are that by grace you have been saved. Grace is unmerited favor. It is getting what you do not deserve. Okay, if you want to understand that a little more clearly, it's uh, summer in Florida and it's really dry this summer. We have not gotten any rain, okay? And all of a sudden, it rains. That's unmerited favor. God didn't need to give that to us. He gave it to us. And he might give it to us, and he might not give it to our neighbor right next door. We've seen that. You see that in Florida, where there is a line where you can stand in the rain and be wet on one side of your body and not wet on the other side of your body, where it's just coming down that clearly. And so we have grace being bestowed in certain ways by God, okay? Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, where was I? Um, yes, okay. Uh, the final words of the verse today, by grace you have been saved. It is getting what you do not deserve. We are the offenders, but God graciously forgives our offenses through the gift of his son. Life application, forced grace is not grace. Verse 2-6. God raised us up with seated us with him heavenly realm in Christ. Okay, and God is inserted there, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The word places is also inserted and they italicized it. It simply says the heavenlies. He seated us in the heavenlies. By taking this verse with the previous one, we can see, we can see Paul's intent more clearly. So here's the two together. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
His words are tying our state directly to the work of Christ. One, he was crucified for our sins and was buried. We were dead in trespasses. See the connection? Okay, next one, two. Two, he was brought back to life because he had no sins of his own. We were made alive together with Christ because our sins were dealt with through his cross. See the connection. Three, he was raised from the tomb. We were raised up together. There's the connection. And four, he was seated in heaven, and we are made to sit together in the heavenly places in him. Everything that God did in Christ in that initial act of, or the, the, the I don't mean initial in the first, I mean the initial and the preeminent act. He, Christ was crucified. He did that in Christ. Christ was buried. He did that in Christ. Christ rose. He did that in Christ. And Christ is sitting in the heavenly places. The preeminent, the first act, we participate in that in Paul's writings in this verse right here. There's a one-to-one correlation. What occurred with Christ is what happened to us in the same order. The two parallel. Christ being the pattern for those who would follow after him. These actions are described by Paul in the indicative. They are simple statements of fact concerning what has occurred. He has raised us up and he has made us to sit together. In God's dealings with us, it is an accomplished fact. We are merely awaiting its actual occurrence. Once again, there's the doctrine of eternal salvation. He says we are sitting in the heavenly places in God's mind. We are already there. He's already done this in his mind. There's no going back on it. There's no reneging on the guarantee. None of those things are going to happen. It is eternal salvation, and the process is immediate when we call on Christ. Christ's resurrection and seating in the heavenlies guarantees our entrance there as well. 100% guaranteed. In fact, Vincent's Word Studies notes that when the word together is used for the translation, it's ambiguous. To clarify its meaning, he notes that the Greek more fully reads, even now we sit there in him and shall sit with him in the end. The deal is done. Just as Christ is seated on his heavenly throne, we are ipso facto seated there with him. In God's mind, it's done. There's nothing we need to worry about. Once again, we talk about, oh, you know, how am I going to get through the week? Oh, woe is me and all the problems we have. And I'm not trying to diminish anybody's problems here. I do it as well. We all worry about what's going on, what's going to happen, etc. If we would have the mind of God, which obviously we can pursue, we can't actually have the mind of God, but we can pursue, we can think about, we can think about what God has done and what he has said in his word. If we have that mind in us, then we would not be worried about the things that worry us. We would not get bent out of shape over the things that bend us out of shape. We'd say, you know what? I'm already sitting in the heavenly places in God. I'm not, once again, I'm not trying to say anybody's doing wrong by worrying. You know, we're not supposed to worry, but we're carnal beings and we're afflicted by our own afflictions and we're all individuals. But if we could just pursue the mind of Christ, we wouldn't worry about these things. Uh, Once again, last Wednesday, a week and a day ago, I woke up from being out in the ER and my first thought was, still here. You know, I, you know what? And I got to tell you, if I died, I wouldn't have known it. I was already completely gone, right? So, I mean, the only people that know that you're dead are the people that are left behind. And it's sad for them. Don't get me wrong. I mean, when you lose somebody, when you lose a pet, when you lose 
you know, connection with a friend over an argument, you worry. I mean, you don't worry. You're, you're, you're frustrated and you're sad and you're, you're miserable about these type of things. But I got to tell you what, when I woke up, that was the first thing I thought is I'm still here. Couldn't believe it. And also, like, worry is a, is a gradient. Oh, that's right. You know, I, I can be concerned that I have a bill to pay. Yeah. I have to do X, Y, and Z to get to that point to pay that. So that's, that's a worry. But I'm not pulling my hair out. Or, no, that's right. But the there are times where we might do that. Right. And so, you know, we just, we're all limited and everything will stress you differently. Everybody's got their own pressure points. Everybody's got their own limitations. If I don't get enough sleep, I'm just, you know, I'm a miserable guy and I can uh, snap at poor Hedico so easily because I, I just, everybody's got their own physical and mental limitations. So it, it's understandable, but we just should try to have the mind of Christ in these things. So um, we are ipso facto seated with, there with him. These things are, as Paul notes, done by God in Christ Jesus. The term is used to show that we are not simply granted these privileges because of his work, but somehow at a distance. Instead, they come to us because we are intimately connected to him, united to him through faith. What occurred with him indeed occurs to us as well. That's why Paul uses this term again and again and again in his epistles, in Christ. It's not that you are, you know, somehow, oh, I'm connected to Christ, and that can be, connect, can be cut somehow, that can be severed. You are in Christ. There's no difference of your position right now in Christ, in God's mind, than Christ himself. You are in Christ. You are completely him. I, and I don't mean him, you being him, you're, he's looking at you through his son. He's not seeing your faults anymore. He's not seeing the things that you do wrong. Don't, once again, we're going to get judged rewards and losses on those things. But when God looks at you, he is not looking at an offender any longer. He's looking at you as you are in Christ. Okay, I want to be careful with the terminology because I don't want you to think I'm saying we're Jesus or we're none of that kind of stuff, but we are in Christ. We are united to him and that is how he sees us. So try to understand that because Paul is using that term for a very particular reason and he uses it again and again to reassure us. Not, you know, if we just look at the term and say, I'm in Christ, we should be reassured. When a pastor says, oh, you can lose your salvation. Well, guess what? I can get up and I can leave that church because I know that's not true. God could no more reject us than he could reject his own son. We are in Christ. That's what we need to remember. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yes. A big little word. Yeah, it's a big little word. That's right. It's a big little word. Life application. I got a question for you. Why did the mother deer take her little boy deer to the dentist? He had buck teeth. I went to the dentist yesterday. I never remember jokes, but I just remembered that, so I had to give it to you. She gave me three very, very good jokes. I, they're very good. I'll give you that one. Uh, they were they were marvelous. Anyway, there you go. That's your joke for the day. Life application. We may, from time to time, do something so utterly stupid that we might feel that we have blown it with God. Once and for all, he has rejected us because of our failings. Paul's words show us that this is incorrect thinking. By faith in Christ, we are united to Christ. God could no more reject us now than he could reject his own beloved son. Deal done. The victory 
is secure. Please trust in that. That is why Paul uses this term, and it is not a term that we should flippantly ignore or allow people to infect our theology over. We are in Christ. We are really the redeemed of the Lord. John 17 does that a lot. Yes. Yeah, in, in, in. That's right. Okay, uh, 2 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Okay, almost the same, but that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Very close. Okay, this has been one continuous thought since verse 4, which contrasts the thought of verses 1 through 3. The words that in the ages to come are set against verse 2, which said the course of this world, which implies the past times in humanity during the mystery of during which the mystery of Christ was hidden. This is described by Paul in Colossians 1, 26 and 27. Let me take you there. It says right there. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, that's the mystery that is being referred to there. So, in Christ, the mystery is revealed. Throughout the ages, it will be a source of richness to those who are his redeemed. This is that this is so that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's words. The words he might show are in the middle voice. Thus, they denote that God intends that these things are done to reveal his own glory. That's why he's doing those things, is so that he can reveal his glory to us. Okay? Whoops. We got somebody coming in, so I don't want to, we'll have to just stop for a second. And How are you doing? Looks like we're going to have pizza for dinner tonight here. And you know what? I told that to Jody when she uh, got on the plane to, uh, to uh, leave. Is, uh, she's not going to have any pizza tonight. So there you go. Oh, that's my bread on top? Yeah. That's oh, boy. I'm ready for that, baby. And, this and that's for Jim. Okay, good. And I thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Oh, better not. You got your glove on. I don't want to get you infected with some type of... I'm not worried. Thank you very much. All right, have a wonderful evening and say hi to that wife of yours for us. All right, we all love you here. All right, take care. Let's see here. So, um, uh, in Christ, the mystery is revealed. Okay, I said they, they are done to reveal his own glory. Okay, what is anticipated in these coming ages is to be revealed in the exceeding riches of his... Somebody watch Burke. He's over there trying to steal my loaf of bread. Is what is anticipated in these coming ages is to be revealed, as Paul says, in the exceeding riches of his grace. The grace of God is one of his defining attributes. We talked about it earlier. Here it is again. It is a part of his very nature. However, God cannot be gracious or merciful without executing justice in a display of his righteousness. He cannot violate one of his defining attributes in the process of granting another. We talked about that earlier. Therefore, these riches of his grace are revealed, as Paul says, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is through the work of Christ that God, God's righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his grace, and so on, 
all shine forth in one dazzling display of who he is. Further, the Greek word en or in is given to show that only those who are in Christ Jesus are the recipients of this. The King James Version unfortunately translates this as through. N is not through. Because of this, it could include anyone, but such is not the case. It is only those who are in Christ that will receive this marvelous grace. The pulpit commentary describes the kindness of God towards those who are in Christ. Here's what they say. And, you know, I will cite the pulpit commentary, and then you won't hear me cite them again for another book or two books. It's because they pulpit commentary is a collection of different scholars, and they said, you're going to do a commentary for us on the book of Galatians, and you're going to do a commentary for us on the book of Ephesians. The guy that did Ephesians did a great job. Sometimes you get some of their Old Testament commentaries. They're not as bad as Cambridge, but they can be pretty poor, okay? These people think they're smarter than God, and they say, well, that verse isn't original, and, you know, they, they do that kind of stuff, and they think that they're being smart and doing that one, and I'll talk about that this coming Sunday. Some of these verses that they, I think it's this Sunday. Anyway, uh, they, they try purposefully, purposefully to diminish the word of God. And boy, I would not want to stand before the Lord when somebody has done that. You know, he has given us this word. We are to search it out. We're to find out which text is correct. But to just arbitrarily and flippantly disregard it is not a healthy thing. I can tell you that. Pure. I'm telling you what, absolutely. The pulpit commentary describes the kindness of God towards those who are in Christ. They say, kindness in the matter of the blessing, forgiving us freely and adopting, uh, I'm sorry, and accepting and adopting us in him. Kindness in the manner of the blessing, dealing with us as Jesus dealt with the woman that was a sinner, or with the thief on the cross, or with Peter after he had fallen, or with Saul of Tarsus, kindness in the extent of the blessing, providing amply for every want, and kindness in the duration of the blessing forevermore. Oh, wonderful, wonderful Lord. The work of Christ is the proof of what is now realized and what will continue to be realized in the ages to come. It is thus to be an encouragement for us, right now, as we await its final consummation. We have an absolutely sure and trustworthy hope because of the work of Christ. Life application. I think we're going to go ahead and finish early because the pizza's warm now. Uh, life application. Marvelous things lie ahead as we walk in the presence of the King of Ages. Good stuff. And it stops right at the uh, end of a page. So we'll start out on a brand new page tomorrow, 2-8. Or, I mean, next Thursday. To eight, the Lord willing. I've, I've got to remember to say that after last Wednesday, you kind of find out how frail you actually are, and you may not be here the next day. So, um, while we're praying today, I'm going to include our pizza man. He is a uh, grew up as a Roman Catholic. What a nice guy! If you haven't had pizza down there, you're going to have it now. But if you uh, haven't taken one home at some point, do so. He and his wife are really wonderful people. She grew up in the Anglican Church, she said, and he grew up in the. Uh, the uh, Roman Catholic Church, and uh, just very nice people. We'll hope that they have uh, fully received the Lord. They have been talked to about it, but, you know, that's a personal decision, and uh, uh, we'll just hope that that's something that they have done. Heavenly Father, we certainly pray for all the people we mentioned at the beginning of this class, and we pray for those that are traveling. We pray that you'll keep them safe and happy and uh, bring them back safely or get them home safely, the case may be. 
and we lift up our pizza man and uh, just their business. It's been a very difficult year because of what happened, opening five minutes after the uh, coronavirus uh, came about or five minutes before it came about. And so we pray that you would continue to bless them and uh, prosper them, and uh, especially as they pursue you. We would pray, pray that that would be the case. And Lord, we thank you for this food. We ask that you bless it. And we certainly thank you for the online people. They're such a blessing in our lives. And it's so good to share with them around the world, uh, knowing that they love your word as we do. And so we ask that you bless each and every one of them in their heart and their soul and uh, meet their needs according to, to your great grace and wisdom. And we pray these things that you'll be glorified in them and that they will be built up in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back this up, say goodbye to him. Somebody in Australia just today sent me an email and said how much, how nice it is that we wave goodbye to them.